Thanks, Mike, for finally letting me tour the Cage Club Podcast Network studios. No problem, Brian. But hey, could you not tell Joey? He hates it when you mess around with his stuff. Is that every Nick Cage movie ever? Yup. From Fast Times to Massive Talent, this network is pretty much the house that Nicky Coppola built. Hey, what about over there? Where do those stairs go? <clears throat> I guess I'll try and do a Martin Sheen impression. <laughs> okay. I mean, we got a couple of these uh, Apocalypse Now episodes to go, so I could do... Uh, you know, maybe I'll do Kilgore. Do Kilgore. Oh, yeah. This is the Kilgore episode, Mike. You gotta yeah, do Kilgore. For real, for real. Uh, all right, everybody. You kind of sounds like Grand- Grandpa Simpsons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is Uncle Francis's wine cellar. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about this one. Usually, I like your accents. This one, you sound again. I can't get the all Grandpa right. Simpson if, out of it. If you're a fan of comedy, Bang Bang, he also sounds like the Timekeeper. Um, <laughs> I love the sound of Uncle Francis's wine cellar in the morning. The cup by cup, Francis Ford Coppola podcast. This is a Cage Club Network production. Damn it. Oh, man. Buonasera. Have a seat. Have a glass. And welcome to Uncle Francis's wine cellar. I'm Brian Rodriguez, but... Where's Michael? We're not starting the podcast without Michael. Oh, man. Well, I just... Uh got back from Saigon in time to hit the tubes and these awesome breaks. The way they we break both ways, it's going to be epic. Anyway, I'm here. <laughs> Today, of course, we're talking Apocalypse Now Redux. Now, Apocalypse Now, of course, came out in 1979. But Mike, today marks some podcast history for us. Ooh. You said it, or sorry, Kilgore said it before. Uh, we call ourselves the Cut by Cut Francis Ford Coppola podcast. And finally, we are directly talking about another cut of a film. As today, yep. we are talking the Redux cut from 2001 of Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now yes. Redux as a film. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Brian, do you know why he called it Redux? Because I have a theory. I don't, I actually. Okay, so this is outlandish, and I've got nothing to back this up. But because actually, uh, Robin asked me, my girlfriend asked me about, like, why does he call it Redux? Would I not, like, recut or? director's cut or anything like that and i was like i think it's because he reinserted the famous french sequence and redux sounds like kind of french and 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 you know i think it's him kind of not being um not not being pretentious but like kind of being funny about it in a way (laughs) it's it's not a recut it's like a redux it's like apocalypse now redo and because of like the you know that sort of fabled french sequence that was reinserted well we're definitely going to talk a lot about that french sequence probably in the next episode of this this is going to take more than one episode for sure uh this is a three hour plus cut one of the greatest francis ford coppola movies uh and between now and then i'll do the research and i'll try to find the actual reasoning for that you might be right mike but but who knows Uh, But before we get into the episode, remember, keep your friends close and your fellow podcasters closer by hitting that subscribe (laughs) button wherever you're listening. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. While you're there, leave us a review if applicable. Leave us a rating if also applicable. Hopefully five stars, maybe four stars. 
again, one star if you really feel that way, but at least you listened. We appreciate you there. Also, follow us on social media, Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar, on the Instagram. You could follow me on Twitter at OHMY Rodriguez, my Rodriguez, and you are the Mikester almost everywhere, Mike. Isn't that correct? Yes, but I, I, I realized I didn't uh, spell it out. I mean, there's two ways to spell st- It's M I K E S T I R, not S T E R. Because you stir the pot, yeah. Good call. It's from my old stirring days. When I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, chef. <laughs> yeah, yes, when you were a saucier, a saucier down in New Orleans, yeah, right, right. I forgot about that. Just, just like, just like chef in this, <laughs> I'm a saucier man. And of course, this would not be Uncle Francis's wine cellar without the wine, Mike. I assume you have not brought wine to the program. It's been almost Brian, a year, Brian. If this was a sitcom, that would be the running gag of the of every episode, where it's I have the wine, but I have not opened it yet, and uh, I'm still waiting on the Victoria coffee to come. Uh, but until then, I just, yeah, I'm sipping bean. That's it. <laughs> well, I hope eventually we do get to see Maris here. But before <laughs> then, of course, I do have a wine. And this is a special one today. I've been waiting to crack this baby open. Actually oh. cracked it open before the episode so I could decant it a little. But this is Francis Coppola Director's Cut. Ooh, ooh, how, how very appropriate. Yes. Yeah, I didn't 20- even know, like, look at Brian. I mean, this is like... The, the thesis statement, you know, in PCU, this is like the moment of like, he even has a director's cut of his wine. It doesn't just stop at his films. It goes nope. over. What is happening? Director's cut Cabernet Sauvignon 2018. And it says on it, let's see, this signature Sonoma wine director's cut pays homage to the history of filmmaking and to the sorry, I'm like turning the bottle and reading. If you're not watching the video, no, it's and okay. to the uncompromising standards necessary to make great films and great wine. <laughs> love it, okay. love it. Very good. So I've been decanting it here. So let me just pour it in my glass. Mike, again, you got to get on that wine train. Yeah, I know, but look at the, and then I gotta get a decanter. And you then don't I need a decanter. Like, I'm just being bougie. I, know, I was joking. <laughs> hey, but but I need at least a one wine glass. I gotta buy a wine glass. You know what? In this next segment, one day maybe I will recommend a decanter for you. Recommend a wine glass. But of course, this is Mike's merchandise. What stand of the episode? Mike's merchandise okay. corner. Ha ha ha! Come walk this way. Take a look. We put the picture's name on everything. Merchandising, merchandising, where the real money from the movie is made. Yep, yep, Mike's merch, yep. And you always present the merchandise first because this is your official segment. So, Mike, what do you got for me this week? Well, Brian, okay, so it's funny you should ask because every show around this time, I happen to have a product to send to you, and today is no different, although... You know, got to kind of stretch it out and think outside the box a little bit and um, come up with serious, non-serious things. So far, we did the tour, right? The river tour last episode when we reviewed the documentary, Heart of Darkness. Um, This time, if I can find my messenger app and send this to you here. Okay, there's a lot of talk in this movie about these right here. So I figured, why not order some? You can order these over the mail and eat them while you'll watch the movie. But these are a box of mangoes, five pounds of mangoes. 
You don't have seventy to get out of the dollars boat. though. I don't know what's the price of mango these days. Well, yeah. these must be these must be really damn good. And there's it looks like there's a lot of them. You, you have five pounds of mangoes, but like yeah, you don't have to get out of the boat. You don't have to get chased by no tiger man. None of that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know what? This is a good idea. I wish I was eating a mango right now while doing this podcast. I think it would pair well with this wine. Uncle Francis might be like, yeah. what are you talking about? Not what this is for, but nope. Well, yeah. I know wine and peaches is an old sort of Italian thing. That was in my family. Uh, my grandfather used to do that a little Interesting. bit. But like, you know, I don't know why we can't. Peach and mango, it's not that different. I think we can experiment a little, you know, be fun. Anyhow, yeah, so I know that might be like stretching it a little thin this episode, but uh, no, I love it. Truth be told, there isn't all that much like merch for this movie, and why would there be really? Because it's you know, not just a war film, but a Vietnam war film, and it's not like I could find bobbleheads of Colonel Kurtz. I mean, it's a it's a very quotable movie, but it definitely has not been marketed like The Godfather. And again, you might have those reasons right there. Like, those might be the reasons that it isn't. Who knows? But it certainly has not been. So, Mike, yeah. I sent you my gift. And every week I've been going to the Academy store, sorry, the Academy Museum store. Of course, it opened, I think, last year in L.A., named after the Academy of Arts and Motion Picture Sciences, if I got that right. The Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. Same theme over here. Not a lot of Apocalypse Now merch. Lots of Godfather merch. I could go do that forever. I might need to go back to that well soon. But when I type Apocalypse Now in the search, there was that Brando book. Another book for you this time, Mike. Can you read it? Yes, I can. Conversations with Dean Tavalaris. Yes, Dean Tavalaris, if you remember, is the production designer for apocalypse now and so many other films it's got a forward by wes anderson who we've said is kind of in the coppola Mm. universe as well yes he is i want to learn more about him after last week's episode and just the what coppola said that he did built all those sets in the philippines like i looked this guy up and oh my goodness he has worked with so many famous people he has worked on so many famous movies, creating the worlds of those movies, the visual worlds, in like a sort of a, not sort of, a pre-CGI era, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I would actually like to get this book. Nice. But it's a, it's Mike, it's a suggestion for you. $74, a little pricey, but this is one of those Ooh. like, this is one of those prime coffee table books, right? Like this is not yeah. like something you put away in the shelf. No, like the, like you click on the, um, examples and the layout looks amazing and very cool and and oh look at that there's a Brian I like it already because I clicked on one and what is there a full page dedicated to the front page of the Godfather Part Three script. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So I mean I'm happy already, but yeah I mean it, it appears to me that this is one of the handful of guys and gals that define the look of movies in the 20th century. So uh, pretty cool. I would like to get this as a gift. I mean, if, if if the Academy Store would like to send us a couple copies to review, I'd be more than happy to go through this page by page on an episode. Yeah, that would be great. I think we should do an episode on it. An Academy Museum Store, if you're listening, we are still open to an official Museum Store sponsorship. So if you'd like to be the official Museum Store of Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar, I <laughs> don't think that's a good business move for you because I promote you enough for free, but... Hey, help us out. Hey, uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to start promoting the Museum of Natural History gift store or um, (laughs) 
like another museum gift store, gift shop or something like that. But uh, anyway, <laughs> when Lucas's museum opens in L.A., oh, which is supposedly yeah. is going to open in a year or two, we'll have to promote that one as well. If if the Academy Museum does not pony up. We are also, again, I have to remind everyone out there, all the nieces and nephews with connections, connected ones, that we are still open for a cannoli sponsorship. We are open for a coffee sponsorship. Our sponsorship roster is currently pretty barren, so if you would like to support the show in a monetary way, we will hawk most products that you give us. There are some products that we probably wouldn't, but I would say, you know, we we will sell our souls for most things. Sure. Yeah. And for some reason, like, we, we'll do all that, but won't start a, a Patreon yet. But we should do that, too. <laughs> so we could start releasing sort of, like, fun mini episodes and clips and things that don't get on the air. The thing but, is, uh, I feel no. like everything we do is a fun, not mini episode. I feel like everything we do is just a fun episode. This we don't feels save like anything a- for it. Yeah, we don't yeah. save anything for the, for the behind the the paywall we, we put it all out there i guess we're like an italian grandmother like when you're done with your pasta you're done with your meatball she just takes another spoon and puts it on your plate and gives you some seconds that's that's what we are on mm. uncle francis wine cellar so maybe we need to be a little bit more stingy i don't know but hey we're just a giving set of people we'll work it out eventually <laughs> oh man uh, can I get Mike Capella in the room? Mike Capella, are you there? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got to get that, like, harmonica thing where it's like, me. <laughs> where in the world is the Godfather streaming? Mike, this is so interesting. A little embarrassing, but I really can't, you know, we really can't blame ourselves for this one. So on the last episode, which, by the way, as of recording, hasn't even been released yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Godfather was streaming... Finally, yeah. it had returned to Paramount+. Plus. It was glorious. We were celebrating. I expect this to be a quick segment today. And I expected us to be like, it's still on Paramount+. Plus. It's off Paramount+, Plus already. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> it is no longer on Paramount+. Plus. I had to check five times. I- I- I'm so confused. So maybe they just kept it there in the meantime until they could get another buyer. And guess what? It is not streaming anywhere officially like on the regular streaming services you could vod it anywhere right like you could vod it on amazon but it is currently on ifc so if you have like the ifc channel or like the app you could get it there so i don't know if like ifc saw that it was on paramount plus and it was like open to be purchased again but hey wow wow (laughs) it's it's now sort of a free agent or on ifc if you want to count how many days was that how many days that was like the shortest streak in history i think it was two weeks honestly mm. wow shorter than arnold stay on mars that is <laughs> wild wild stuff wild stuff i know that that wasn't the only streaming news that you might have had today is that true you want to get into that real quick i don't know what you're talking about uh maybe how you couldn't find today's movie oh 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 oh, oh we'll get into that trust me i have a okay. whole a little tease actually little tease I have a whole segment on that planned. Wow. But we got to do our sponsored segments, Mike. We have to do them. Yep, yep, yep. No news on Megalopolis, so... Oh, we're still dark, huh? Dark on Megalopolis. Wait, you didn't let me do the... Well, I was going to let you do it for Coppola News. 
Okay. Coppola news. <laughs> we got to pre-record one of those. Two bits of Coppola news that I wanted to share. Two bits? A quarter of Coppola news? <laughs> First, um, I sent this over earlier today. Now, this is something near and dear to me, being a New Yorker. HBO, for years, had oh. their head- headquarters across the street from Bryant Park here in the city. And they used to run film festivals and summer movies, and it was great. Uh, but HBO moved their headquarters over to Hudson Yards, a, you know, a couple blocks away. I would say, like, I don't know, 10 blocks away. You know, good walking distance, but you could walk it. For whatever reason, they've given up on sponsoring the Bryant Park stuff, and our friends at Paramount Plus will actually be sponsoring the movies in the park this summer, and we're supposed to get mm. some exclusive Paramount properties being screened there. Uh, this was an article in Variety, meaning, Mike, potentially, in one of the coolest, I think, one of the coolest like outdoor screenings in the world, the Bryant Park screenings, we might get The Godfather, Godfather 2, Coda, even Apocalypse Ooh. Now, Jack, wow. who knows? Well, I don't know if those are all Paramount properties, but I know The Godfather is. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that'd be amazing. I'd love to, to, to go to one of those and do an episode on that. That would be so much fun. We could interview people while we're there, too. Yeah, that's a great idea. Which of our episodes is your favorite? (laughs) Like what? You never heard of it? (laughs) Maybe we'll pick up a sponsor while we're there. Who knows? Oh, now you're talking. Exactly. The other bit of news we have for the nieces and nephews is, I don't know, it's just so coincidental. Um, It's another thing straight from Variety. That's where I read it, at least. Variety, the people who called Monsters That Made Us one of the best horror podcast i believe for the year 2021 2022 who knows thank you (laughs) what do you mean who knows no it was 20 what year was it (laughs) i think it was 21 anyway yeah who does know good question but you should not me you should know regardless (laughs) you're definitely uh, right Uh (laughs) uh variety now pulled this from the jennifer hudson show which i didn't know was still a thing emilio estevez was on that show and he was speaking how when he was 14 years old, he visited the set of today's movie to see his father, of course, his father, Martin Sheen. And he was hanging out with good old Larry Fishburne, Mr. Clean. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah, I could see that because they're the same age. <laughs> Around the same, right? Like, uh, I think he started at 14. I know he had a birthday on the set, Lawrence Fishburne. So Crazy. Maybe he was 15. Maybe he was 14. Whatever. They're around the same age. They're in the Philippines, and they decide to get on a boat just for fun. Oh, this seems cool. The boat ends up, like, running adrift, like, on shore, but it ends up being quicksand. And apparently... Oh, my God. <laughs> Lawrence, which is, like, so Indiana Jonesy, right? Uh, apparently, Lawrence Fishburne had to pull Emilio Estevez out of the quicksand. And according to Emilio Estevez, he saved his life. We wouldn't have the Mighty wow. Ducks if it wasn't for Lawrence Fishburne. Wow. So. Forget the Mighty Ducks. We wouldn't <laughs> have the Young Guns. I well, mean, of course, I got to say Breakfast Club as the host of High School Slumber Party. Yeah. And we never did get Young Guns Part 3. I'm still waiting on that. The legend of, uh, <laughs> Curly of Billy the Kid. Curly is gold. Yeah, right. Um, Brushy Bill Roberts. But uh, that's incredible. Yeah, you know, quicksand too, right? Like actually exists some places, which I love to find out because I just, you know, always loved that as a kid and thought that was a myth. But to actually get stuck in it, I mean, man, and then to have like, wow, that's 
awesome. <laughs> That's funny. While uh, while we're recording, your Monsters That Made Us co-host on cue, right? Yep, Se- yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> sent us a picture of a wine that, that says, what did he say? What was his caption? The official wine of the Monsters That Made Us, LOL. Bella Lugosi Red. So, hey. Hey, you, you guys have a wildly successful monster podcast. Don't steal the wine yep. gimmick, gimmick from Uncle Francis. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's synergy. It's cross-promotion. Bella Lugosi's red, translucent black grapes, French Merlot. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm sure Uncle Francis is, would be thrilled. I mean, plus Dracula. You know, he directed Dracula. Like, it's all connected, baby. Don't get mad. Grandpa Bella's wine castle. We're not we're not claiming that it is our own or nothing. I'm kidding. You know? That's awesome. Full, That's awesome. It, the monsters that made us bring you Brian Rodriguez's wine <laughs> of the show. <laughs> Does the monsters that made us want to be the official podcast sponsor of Uncle Francis's wine cellar? I mean, I don't know what we could have to offer you <laughs> to, or bring me the wine. for that matter. <laughs> well, 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 ask Dan if Dan wants to do that. That's cool. Well, you mentioned, Mike, that the last episode we uh, covered here was Hearts of Darkness, which is the documentary based on the making of this film. So today we're not going to get too into the behind the scenes and the production Mm. stuff. Please listen to that episode. Also, let's be honest, we're going to cover at least two more cuts of this film, maybe three more cuts of this film. In our run here in Uncle Francis' Wine Cellar, we're going to talk Apocalypse Now a lot. So if we don't hit everything here, if we miss something, we'll have chances to correct ourselves. Who knows? By the end of this round, there might be another cut of Apocalypse Now. Even though the last one is technically called the final cut, there might be the final, yeah. final cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't believe it. Don't believe the hype, right? <laughs> <laughs> but today, of course, we are talking the Redux. So really quickly, Mike. Really, really quickly. I did want to give a like a four sentence summary of the production if you just happen to pop in today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here's my summary. Literally I wrote this. This was one of the original American Zoetrope projects that Francis and his friends had proposed to the studios. It was originally going to be a George Lucas project. It was written by their other buddy, John Milius. Um, it ended up not being made for reasons that we get into on that Zoetrope documentary episode. Francis, yep. after the success of The Godfather, decides he wants to make it. So Lucas, pretty busy at this point. He has Star Wars, you know, uh, success another, beh- another behind him. War. Yeah, another <laughs> war of his own going on. Yes, exactly. So Francis decides to direct it himself. He reworks the script a bit. Oh, if I didn't mention, it is, of course, an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Maybe we'll again read it one day. Anyway, Francis shoots in the Philippines. It's a crazy, crazy, crazy production. Actors are being replaced. It goes incredibly over budget. Not to mention that Francis is self-financing the entire thing. He doesn't even think it's going to be a success. Lo and behold, they get home, they edit it, and it is a huge uh, critical success for Francis, commercial success, and it's considered one of the greatest films of all time. Really putting Francis in this stratosphere of like, whoa, Yes, he made The Godfather. Yes, he made The Godfather 2. But he could always say, if you want to say who are the greatest directors of all time, the Francis fans like us can say, yeah, well, he has three movies 
considered by a lot of people to be the greatest of all time. Yeah, for a while, it put him in the uh, category of, like, do no wrong, right? It's, like, ultimate pass. He's got, like, a... He's had, like, one of those cards. For, for better or worse, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's true. And, I mean, you don't get to keep that forever unless you're someone like Spielberg who keeps proving themselves, you know, or, or even a De Palma or something like that from time. But, like, yeah, he became a household name, and he never stopped being one, pretty much. Absolutely. This is, like... Sports metaphors, I'm going to do it. I know there's not a lot of crossover between film podcasts and sports podcasts. Well, unless, you, you know, unless you're Bill Simmons. But uh, this, to me, is hockey comparison. Mark Messier winning the Stanley Cup without Wayne Gretzky in Edmonton. This is Steph Curry winning another championship for the Warriors without Kevin Durant. This is Kobe winning without Shaq. This is Francis, again, proving he could win Best Picture without the power of the Godfather franchise. He didn't win Best Picture, sorry, Mm -hmm. to be clear. I mean, he could have a movie that is considered one of the greatest all time without the Godfather franchise. I know it's based on Conrad, but this isn't Harry Potter. People didn't go to the theater to see a Conrad Conrad adaptation, right? This feels more organic than the Godfather films, and I think that makes it special. And and it feels like a completely different style of filmmaking, if I'm completely honest. And it just shows that uh, it's more sort of like expressive in the sense of like uh using film to show what's going on within somebody's psyche as opposed to i think the godfather film was used more to not to explore that as much you know i'm not saying it doesn't do that but this goes full on like it gets psychedelic at times so yeah it just it's to show this his versatility on display to be like I have these movies that are considered like to be totally great and they're totally different from each other. So that as well, I think um, goes to show a lot, but you know, Brian, I mean, if I could, you know, sort of jump my metaphor, you, you use sports, I'll use music, mm-hmm. right? This is like uh, John Lennon's first solo album after the Beatles breakup or something like that. Right. Oh, yeah. like, it, it's, it's like that. It's like just showing the artist showing you a hundred percent, who they are on their I mean he had Milius his words there but like eventually they changed a bunch of that too but you get the idea like this is this is just like full tilt Francis great, great way to put it it's Paul McCartney with wings it, it's John Lennon's solo stuff it's again that first George Harrison album it's like oh they're away from the Beatles yes they have the Beatles legacy that's probably why they can do these projects but they're proving that they're just great musicians they they did not necessarily need the Beatles, right? And and great analogy there with music. Now, I tried to do a quick summary. I hope I did a good job of the production. Now, yeah. can you give me a quick summary of your history? Not the Redux, just your history with Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now. Like the first yeah. time you saw it, maybe. Ooh, so I think the first time I saw it was probably sometime in high school. And... I was fortunate because I had like stars and maybe not stars, but like Encore and, and HBO, but like um, Turner Classics. Like I would see a lot of stuff on those movie channels late at night and would record them on VHS. Like that's when I first saw Clockwork Orange. I think around that time I saw it and I wasn't entirely blown away by it because I was a teenager and it just wasn't really what I was very much into at the time. Like you got to understand, like I went to high school around the time of like, face-off coming out in theaters and con air and and like point break so like 
later, like in college, though, uh, when I started studying film seriously, this film was on all the time. Like, I just put it on. I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. And I had not watched this movie in like a long time. And when I watched it for the show, I was like really getting back into it a lot. Just a lot of like those feelings of like watching it for the first time and then like watching it for the 10th time. Uh, I remember just having it on in the background while I would be trying to write. Um, yeah, just I watched the original one. It's the original one. I watched that so much that while watching the Redux this time, I was like, oh, this is different and that's different and this is different. So things started really jumping out at me. I've only seen this cut, I think, once or twice before in its entirety. So uh, I was looking forward to getting back into watching a lot of Apocalypse Now again. Yeah, Mike, so you're going to be a real big resource for me. Um, I was curious what cut you watched the most. Redux is really my cut of Apocalypse Now. That's kind of why uh-huh. I wanted to cover it first. It came out in 2001, and I, you're a little bit older than me. For 2001, that's my first year of high school. So that's when I'm kind of getting into movies like this. And this is actually the first version I saw of Apocalypse Now. So I had to go wow. backwards like to watch the original. Eventually I sought uh-huh. that out. Of course, Final Cut comes out and yep. saw that. But this is the apocalypse now that I knew for years. Like, I would get this on Netflix. At one point, I owned the Blu-ray. I couldn't find it. More on that (laughs) in in a second. So, for me, it's like backtracking. So, I I looked up the stuff that was added, but the internet might not say everything. So, if there's anything Mm -hmm. that you know was added, like, you know, feel free to mention for sure. Yeah. Uh, just like right out of the gate, like the main thing for me, like aside from like scenes and this and that or whatever, the general vibe is just different. Like, uh, especially on the boat. I mean, I feel like these guys never get along in this cut, whereas in the original cut, there's more of this sense of camaraderie at the beginning and then a disintegration by the end, where in this one, they're constantly fighting with each other. And like, I feel like they're always on each other's nerves. And I don't know if that's just you know, the Martin Sheen's point of view, like he, he can't relate to them. So he sees them fighting, but like, to me, it was just, this cut is way more tense than I remember. hundred percent. So now that I've seen all the cuts, uh, and maybe, you know, we'll come to a different conclusion at the end of all our episodes here, but I always felt like this is the cut that reminded me the most of war. Not that I'd been to war to be clear, but this is the cut to me that has the most fog of war, has the most just yeah. uh, up and down emotions of war. Like, uh, yeah, it is bipolar. And I think there's a function to that. Um, I don't know. I, I need to watch all three again to, to determine mm-hmm. which is the best cut for me. But I remember being really like drawn into this cut originally because of that, because it felt like a almost like the Odyssey, like a meandering like tale of just like how effed up war especially the vietnam war could be not that the other cuts aren't but you're right like that the other cuts do feel like more of a progressive story of frustration where this is like frustrating from the jump you know we entered room here a room here it's just like oh i can't i cannot wait to get into it but mike we almost (laughs) didn't get into it because of something that was shocking you mentioned that like you would put uh, apocalypse now on when you were writing i used Mm -hmm. to put the Redux on for years 
on in the background while I was editing my other show, High School Slumber Party. Because wow. I, I knew it so well. I, again, it, to me, it was a movie I could pop in and out at any time because of the nature of its... Uh, I don't want to say vignettes, it's, but no, but, but it's got ch- it's kind of like chaptered in yeah. a lot of ways, right? Like without saying, like I could totally see him. I haven't seen the final cut, but like putting chapter title markers up, would I would I would embrace that if he did that, you know? <laughs> part one, part two, part three, up the river, like beyond the bridge, whatever you want to title the the parts. Yeah, no, it did. It felt it felt like that. So, Mike, I don't know. But it felt like Redux was on Netflix for at least three or four years straight. Right, right. There's some things that just feel like they were never going to leave that that app. Well, Francis decided to make the final cut a couple years ago. And I did not realize that when the final cut came out, he would be deleting all the other cuts. And I don't know if it's just he. I don't know if this is an economic decision. But right now, the final cut is the one you could pretty much rent everywhere that's the one you could find streaming in places similar to the godfather coda how they've sort of deleted godfather 3 from a lot of places all the Mm -hmm. other apocalypse now cuts are pretty much deleted from places um you you digitally lent me your copy we'll put it that way thank you mike Mm -hmm. for that i don't like this i don't like that francis does this no no brian he's not the only one who does this this is like a zoetrope thing george lucas does this too he did this with star wars like you can only buy the Mm. special editions of the original trilogy and i don't even think he sold the rights to disney of the original version like he there might have been a clause where like he can't alter them any longer than any more than he has you know i don't know what the deal with that is but like it goes even further because um, when like spielberg altered et he just came out with a statement saying he regrets putting um, walkie-talkies in the hands of people with, instead of erasing the guns in the hands and putting walkie-talkies. So, like, you can't find a cut of that E.T. either, you know? Like, the the Star Wars uh, Christmas special was uh, wiped from history for years until it, you know, got on... Uh, like someone got it at a comic convention and put it on the internet. So, like, it's like a it's like a zoetrope thing. It's like this is the only one that's going to exist now. Like it's the better one. Like don't you know? I don't understand it, but like I don't. I mean, it's a thing. Let the people decide. Like if you truly feel like you have the <laughs> definitive version of a film, great. You know what I mean. And that that let's Adam Smith this. Let's be super capitalists, right? Like the invisible hand will guide that one to the top. That would be. The the, yeah. the the one that people would like and doesn't mean eliminate the others like let the yeah. film nerds enjoy all of them yeah you should check and see how many cuts of blade runner are available to rent right now because there's like four cuts of that fucker and like i'm pretty sure ridley scott's like watch them all and make up your mind but this is the one that i like the most you know I, I, yeah you know i doubt he's the kind of guy that's gonna be like why would i stop you from watching my movie as many times as possible. <laughs> Next week, I think we're going to go over all the DVD, VHS, and Blu-ray versions. Not go over all of them, but I'm, I just want to break yeah, down yeah. how many times. Because I have one. I have the like complete dossier. Which yes. Is, I think, yeah. And then I have the new 4K collection. So. so the complete dossier, I'm glad you bring that one up. That one had all the versions up until that point. So like, at least for Francis, he was totally okay with different versions being out until the final cut. And 
for the coda with the Godfather, right? Like before the coda, not that there was a lot of versions out there for Godfather three, but he seemed yeah. to not care. For Lucas, this has always been a thing. For Francis, this seems like a recent thing. I don't know if his buddy George was like, like Francis, why do you have the other versions out there? You know what I mean? Like I don't know, but <laughs> I just it makes me nervous because like I don't own all of Francis's movies. I don't have physical copies right so like is it are we going to be able to find the original version of twixt when we watch betwixt uh, <laughs> you know like i worry in on that level sometimes about like accessibility and choice thank is god it- you're an expert ebayer mike thank well, god because we're crazy we're going to have to track down some of these things via ebay we might need to pitch in our funds together to get some of these things yeah uh, because you're absolutely right. I think there's a belief among, we'll say, our generation or a lot of people that this stuff is just going to live forever. If it's made, we're going to be able to see it. And that's just a fallacy. The generation before us certainly knew that wasn't the case. I think the generation after us will realize that's not the case. But we were in kind of the sweet spot where, hey, if it was made, it was available. And yep. It's going to be hard to do this show at some points. We'll say that. And <laughs> <laughs> not just this show. <laughs> oh, man. So, I mean, how funny would it be if, it, if, like, one day it came down to vinegar syndrome, to preserving the films of the Zoetrope catalog? <laughs> like, you know. The Zoetrope vault has opened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, why was Apocalypse Now Redux made? So, Coppola, I mean, probably for a lot of reasons. But Coppola had always thought about recutting this film, even though it was a success. He felt like there was more, there was a lot left on the table and a story he wanted to tell. He had yeah. been contacting Walter Murch, who we, mm-hmm. again, know from a lot of things, but we know from the Zoetrope documentary, another great voice. I mean, literally, right? And asking Walter Murch to like have a go at it with him for years and do like a different cut. Merch refused for a while, and then eventually they were like, hey, let's do it. And they, interestingly enough, this isn't one of those movies that took deleted scenes and just inserted them in. They recut a lot of stuff from dailies, from you know alternate shots of things. Now, some mm-hmm. scenes remain identical. Some scenes remain different. But this is a cut where they legitimately got Martin Sheen, Robert Duvall, Sam Bottoms, Albert Hall, Frederick Forrest... And some of the people in the the French, uh, the French uh, colonial sequence. part, yes, yeah, sequence to ADR stuff. Oh, I didn't know that. Redo lines like this was well, not your regular recut okay. of a film. This is truly a laboratory recut. Okay, okay. There's another reason this had to have happened at this specific time. All right. And that, again, it's his buddy George was doing the special editions. Good and, point. you know, one thing they discovered, which became a big part of later day film preservation, was that if they hadn't opened the vault and looked at those reels at, of Star Wars at that time, they, they maybe would never have been able to save them because they were starting to become such in such bad condition that if they didn't repair them then, they may not have had a chance in the future to do it. So it was like this sort of serendipitous time. So I think Coppola might've been like, you know what? I should probably check on how my movie is doing or my films. And if George is cleaning his up and recutting it and not just inserting 
stuff for no reason, but actually trying to expand his story and cleaning this up and that, like, maybe I can do that, you know? And I feel like that's not obviously the only reason, but I feel like that had to be an influence, you know, to be like, hey, everyone's back at work. Like, it feels like the 70s again. George is making Star Wars. Like, let me pick up Apocalypse again and see. And I've always wanted to see if there was more to do there. Like, now's the time. It just, you know, it kind of feels like that for everybody. Yeah, that's a really good perspective timing-wise. I hadn't even thought about that connection, but you're so right. This is a time where this is more common. Um, look, there's an economic reason for this as well. Uh, when this is released, we had like a short theater release uh, in 2001 that was pretty successful. Uh, the DVD, this is like prime time for what we say, like the special features chock full of nuts DVDs, right? The DVD does incredibly well. There's almost a renaissance for Apocalypse Now because of Apocalypse Now Redux. So yes, there's economic reasons, but you're right. There's artistic reasons. There's film preservation reasons. Now, recently we spoke, I forgot the name of the person, but we spoke last week about a director who said this was a worse version of the film. Some people don't like it. Some people love it. I love it because... I almost want to know everything about yeah. this story. I don't yeah. know if people should do it like I did it. Like maybe this isn't the first Apocalypse Now you should watch. But I think if you love this movie, and this is one of my favorite films of all time, just in general, Apocalypse Now. I think yeah. if you want more, you get more with this. This is like the oh, everything totally. version. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I feel the same way in that even on one of my shows, Third Times of Charm, I used to read the novelizations of movies and partially i used to do it for fun it's a it was a funny joke to do to read out loud some of the insane things printed in those novelizations but the other part was to get like a larger scope of what else was going on that got maybe got cut or dropped early or whatever you know and it was fun to just get like everything about that world and i also sort of like comic adaptations comic book adaptations for the same reason any way, like multimedia, whatever way I could get like a larger picture and more scope of that universe, I usually am welcome to that, you know? And strangely, I said, and I think you agreed that like, not that we want it, but they could do a Godfather TV show because we're in the age of the epic mm -hmm. TV show or we'll say the prestige TV show. I don't think... In modern day, you could do an Apocalypse Now TV show. I think... Mm -mm, no, no. Subject matter shooting like this is almost impossible. However, I, yeah. feel, I feel like this is the closest we're ever going to get. The Redux, right? Yeah, yeah. So you could do something with this like Tarantino did with Hateful Late and break it up into chapters on Netflix. Have you seen that? It's actually quite good. I think he extended the Hateful Late into like th three or four hour long episodes of television uh maybe it was even more but it plays really well and i i feel like you could maybe do that with this if he had an extra you know if he could get this to four hours like then that would be an interesting way to present it in um in chapters like that i think you could break it up but otherwise like i don't i don't know like i think it's more interesting to let this be this adaptation of heart of darkness like this is the vietnam adaptation of that i think we were talking maybe it was last episode if we could think of other adaptations and i think i thought of one have you ever seen ad astra with brad pitt i haven't okay so like basically he plays an astronaut that has to go all the way to neptune to stop his father from basically trying to like 
take over the solar system. I do know, um, by the way, it is another considered another adaptation of Conrad. Okay, that's what I was getting at because, um, like, this is what I prefer is like that is sort of the future version of Apocalypse Now because it's the future adaptation of Heart of Darkness. So, like, I would prefer more adaptations of the source material as opposed to more apocalypse now like i don't need to see what martin sheen was up to in the previous mission right which we get little bits about in in this one we get more in this one i think than in in the uh theatrical cut like i don't need that i don't need to see you know clean where he comes when he gets like drafted or whatever you know i don't need to see all of the i don't need to see colonel kurtz at harvard or any of this kind of stuff right um i i think with this story in particular the mystery really helps sell a lot of this intrigue and stuff like that we're locked into martin sheen's mind and like seeing it all from behind his eyes like i i I think that is part of as much as i like you know a three-hour version and i like seeing the whole story like i like the way it's told through his eyes i don't need them to blow it open in that way you know what i'm trying to say yeah yeah and the other thing i would compare this to yes and no but this to me is almost like now that it's regularly available i wish it was but that cut of the godfather and godfather 2 plus the deleted scenes whether that's the epic the saga who knows Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but like that's what this feels like except that the difference between this and The Godfather to me is like this takes place over what a week, you know, a, a couple yeah. days. The Godfather is over many, many years and many, many generations, so it is different in that way. But I think, in I mean, it's similar to me as it's. You mentioned that one of the DVDs is called The Complete Dossier. This feels like instead of Redux, it feels like the Complete Dossier version, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I hear you. I just feel like again, two such different movies like the godfather is told through so many different perspectives like so many different characters yeah. like you follow around and this is like you're clear like i feel like we're clearly locked into one so i just don't think it would lend itself well to more expansion than than we already have like that because that's all i see is like i don't need to get off the river with this guy right like i i almost feel like with the redux like i want to get there faster i feel like you know i understand he fled, he he expanded the uh the opening a bit more before he actually gets there but anyway i'm sure we'll get there yeah i think it's almost the opposite though in terms of if you want to get there faster that's what the theatrical cut or maybe the final cut's all about this is if you want the slow burn, right? This is the the whiskey version of Apocalypse Now. This isn't your <laughs> shot version of Apocalypse Now. I, I guess what I'm saying is with the Captain Willard stuff, like the movie originally opened so so sort of like hard and dramatically with him punching. It's like all that stuff in the hotel room is pretty much there already. Like I'm already locked into his state of mind, you know, his second his second tour the secret mission and all that kind of thing that like i i did i don't know i felt like the shorthand there worked a little better than whatever was going on here but i still like it don't get me wrong i still like it well i i think you're right i think you're 100 percent right but i love getting more regardless like i don't think this <laughs> works better at all but i love it because this is exactly 
what I want as a Coppola nerd, an Apocalypse Now nerd, you know what I mean? Yeah. Of course, we open with the end, ironically, by The Doors. Yeah. You know, that iconic thing, and then suddenly we are in that hotel room, that iconic scene that I can never see differently now that we've seen Hearts of Darkness, (laughs) with Martin Sheen freaking out, knowing that he actually had... You know, a heart attack <laughs> on set. Yeah. And Francis is like, keep going, keep going. Oh my God. Seeing it now after watching Hearts of Darkness, what was your what were your thoughts on it? Um it's like, you know, disturbing, of course. And like it, it it's kinda like it's that whole is it necessary to be that method, really, with all of this? Uh but again, it get, was their style at the time. They both were consenting to do that right so like i i don't know it's fine to me it's not as much acting as it is just being right and i kind of want the acting more i feel like at the end of the day maybe it would have been better if it wasn't as real if you you know you know what i mean like if martin sheen had to sort of like stretch and act and do it instead of like actually go through it maybe maybe it would have been better i don't know you never know but what I like about this opening, what I've always liked is uh, that opening shot, you know, we're going to see that shot later from a mm-hmm. different angle. And I love the story of how that was basically in the scrap bin and they pull it out of the garbage and they're like, what's this? And then he's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, this is going to be the opening to the film. That's awesome. And the whole thing that's going on in the hotel room, I feel like Martin Sheen is seeing the future. Right. Like he's having this entire premonition about the the whole movie and what's he even sees the Buddha that he's going to see like at the end up river. Right. Like at the um, where Kurtz is, I think. But he sees the napalming of the village that he's going to go to where they all go surfing. Just really great montage going on with all of it and the helicopters and the and the ceiling fan and the doors and everything. Just really sets the stage of like oh this guy's already lost it like oh we're gonna be following him he's gonna get his shit together in the next couple minutes and like we're gonna watch this guy go back to war all right let's see and let's take a moment to acknowledge martin sheen here um as we talked about on the hearts of darkness episode he replaced harvey keitel at the last minute they'd already shot scenes with harvey keitel and as much as i like harvey keitel i on this watch, realize how Martin Sheen was so much of a better choice. Harvey Keitel, as good as he is, he always comes off as hard to me, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we're talking about a character who is an assassin, essentially. He's a military-hired assassin. He's a yeah. kill- killer. And I don't know if Harvey Keitel would have been the right fit for that because I don't know if I would have empathized with the character like I do with Martin Sheen. This is a character mm-hmm. on paper that we should not empathize with at all right he talks about how he needs to go back there how he almost needs to be in the jungle in the shit he needs to kill right and yet as i'm watching this movie and while he does sometimes diabolical things i'm siding with this character i'm empathizing with this character and i think it's because of the way like his acting is and i think it's just the way martin sheen generally is I mean, absolutely. I feel the same way about Kaitel. Like, he is pretty harsh. Just look, like, he's just a harsh-looking guy. I mean, we love him from Last Temptation of Christ, right? <laughs> but, like, he's like, Jesus Christ, what are you thinking, Jesus Christ? You know, like, <laughs> it's like that kind of, I couldn't see him in this being 
as soft as he needs to at times. Like, that's the thing I feel not just about Martin Sheen, but Captain Willard is that, like, he is so sort of resigned to being who he is, right? Like, he's like, he knows exactly who he is. I feel like he knows he's a killer and all this stuff, and he's accepted that, right? And so I think having done that, he's able to have these genuine moments of self, like, at other times. Like, there's that time where, like, they steal the surfboard, and, like, it's like, he's a prankster now, and, like, he's having fun at times, and, like, there's other times where he's just, like, a cold-blooded killer. Like, he's a psychopath, is basically what he is. And in order to sort of portray that, you have to be likable somehow. And I think it it's also his looks, you know, he's got a very boyish look in this film for a 30 year old guy. He's got this baby face. He's got a very soothing voice. He's got a very even temperament. He's sort of like also hard to read sometimes, but always something in the eyes that is like mercy or tender or something like, you know, I don't know. You can't quite put your finger on it, but I absolutely agree that just looking at Harvey Keitel, I get scared sometimes <laughs> because of his like resting face. And uh, Martin Sheen is just always sort of like that, like all American kind of boyish, like propaganda looking guy, you know, the, the gung ho G.I. Joe. And like, it's like, no, he's like the secret weapon. He's the deadly killer. It seems like Keitel, like that character, you would have watched and thought, oh, this guy was always a badass. But with Sheen's portrayal, and again, we're just assuming here, but with Sheen's portrayal, right. I feel like he was innocent at one point, and he was just a soldier, and war okay. has made him this way, essentially. And now he's resigned to the fact that the only place... He has a line where it's like, where they're talking about being there, and it's like, it's better than being in a factory in Ohio. Like, he feels most at place now. He's found his place in the sun, and it's, at, it's killing in war. So, <laughs> I, I again, I think Martin Sheen is just, this is a performance that I think when we revisit it, could have won Best Actor. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's just overshadowed by the name Brando, even though he doesn't show up until the end. And, like, even Robert Duvall is sort of like, that's the thing, like, Martin Sheen's performance, too, is also so sort of like quiet in a lot of ways. Understated. You know? Yeah, and everybody else in the movie is like a almost like a cartoon character. We've come, you know, like I didn't even notice that until this go around. But like Chef even has the big fucking mustache and shit. Like, you know, they all have like their limp in a crutch or whatever they used to call it. Like there's always they all have these defining things about him that make him stand out so much and and martin sheen kind of doesn't and uh maybe that's part of it you know maybe i think so yeah so let's talk about honestly i don't know why i love this scene so much the meeting right like the way we get to the meeting is like the, uh, the soldiers yeah. come they have to bathe martin sheen it's almost pathetic but they they bring him to this base and they get him to this compound and i remember the first time i saw this i was like what one is that harrison ford <laughs> and apparently he plays Colonel Lucas. Oh, that's funny. You know that's on purpose. You know that's on purpose. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, awesome that we see Harrison Ford here. And then the other, there's two other guys. It's like the CIA dude um, who's like quiet until the end, which I think is such a great touch. But the other dude is uh, the, the Senator Pat Cleary from The Godfather 2. Yeah. The actor's <laughs> name is G.D. Spradlin. 
I hope I said that correctly. These are the only two things I recognize him from, honestly. But he is so iconic and so great in The Godfather 2. And to see him here in another Coppola film, again, first time I watched this, I was like, oh, it's that guy. And I just love this scene. They're like, they're questioning Willard. They're like, oh, what about that mission? And he's passing it flying colors. He's like, oh, I don't recall that. It's like, even if even if that did happen, I wouldn't, you know, oh, like, yeah. disclose I'll- it. Uh, I love that part. I love all the uh, you are the uh, the guy we're looking for, right? And he's like, "Well, uh, no, but if I am, <laughs> you know, I might be, but I'm not." Uh, and they're like, "Yeah, he's the guy." They're like, "Cut the shit! Like, we want you because you're a badass and all this." And then um, the like the 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 meal and everything. Oh, food with, like, for food films. Oh, right. Yeah. Famous foodie scene and all this. And then uh, the dossier. And like, here's what I love about this scene. Like, it's so well directed in the sense that Martin Sheen's character doesn't really know like what's going on. Right. So he has that sense of like, you know, like, what's up, guys? Like, what's happening? As the scene goes on, the look on the faces of everyone else around the table turns more and more dreadful you know like they hand over the papers and he starts reading it and they're explaining and and the looks on their face start to get worse and then they play the audio recording and the look on their face is even worse you know and he looks around the table and i think he starts to get the picture that like you know this guy is truly lost it and like is more dangerous than he might even realize at the time but like i just you could see it written on their face that like Kurtz is a very big problem and everyone feels so bad about having to have to do this. Uh, but I just really love that moment as well. That, that whole like recruitment moment. Oh my goodness. And you, you think about uh, some of the, the way the line deliveries are there when, uh, when he's like, I saw a snail on the edge of a razor blade the brando <laughs> stuff yes but i mean like the people in the room uh, i keep calling him senator cleary but the <laughs> the senator right when he's not a senator yeah, yeah. Film, when they kind of explain that in, in a way that implies that they might have had a relationship that they might have been friends because the way he's talking about him like he's, yeah. he says the word unsound reach a breaking point and the way he delivers those things i'm like oh my god this is gold like i said i love I love this scene and just that CIA guy in the background. And then he only says like terminate with extreme prejudice. It's like one of his only yeah. lines. You're like, holy shit, this is big. Back to the food though. I don't want to skip that. Okay. It's roast beef. They're eating it. And then he's like, oh, if you can eat the shrimp, you've already proved your, your courage or whatever. And they have that close up yeah. on the shrimp. It's like, whoa. <laughs> A little bit later, when um, Willard's talking about it, he has a great line that says, charging a man with murder in this place is like handing out mm-hmm. speeding tickets at the Indy 500. Yeah. I always love that line. But for whatever reason, it brought me to this question I want to ask you, Mike. Okay. This part of the film reminds me of like an old school, almost Humphrey Bogart noir, right? Yep. This isn't like the dame walking into the office, but this is a sort of like that, right? Like, the detective gets his mission, and he's like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Why? That's odd. So what genre would you say this film is? Is this a war film? Is it a mystery? Is it a noir? I've even heard people call this a Western in style. Mm. What is it for you? That's a good question. I mean, I don't think it's a 
Western. I mean, uh, it's a war film for sure. You know, I mean, I, is Vietnam a, its own classification of war film? Possibly. I'll I say mean, this: if it's know, a war film, it's a Vietnam war film. It's not like your yeah. traditional war film. That's for sure. It's, it's like psychedelic and avant-garde, but not in the way of like, you know, it's not extreme like that, right? Like we never get like Technicolor Dreamcoat stuff happening or anything, but we do get like, you know, airlifting cows across burning fields while people are surfing. And it's just like, what? Uh, you know, it's like that kind of surrealism. I don't, I don't know for sure, Brian. I mean, I've always just thought of it as a war film, but like, I love the noir take on this because it makes me bring up something that I want to talk about, which is the voiceover. Mm. Okay. Which is like impossible to pull off in film. And if your film can pull it off, it's probably a great movie. <laughs> you know, I just look at it in every other film, like recently, like even in avatar and stuff, it's like, you're not telling me anything I'm not looking at. Right. But like a line like that, like says so much more than what I'm seeing, you know, it just, it adds a dimension, like the voiceover here and his train of thought and his like trying to put it together and his like talking, talking it through. It's kind of something I miss in movies to be quite honest with you, but it's because like, it's so fucking hard to do. Like it's something I learned in film school to like, don't even try it uh, until like you've sold a script or something and you know that you have some chops or whatever. But like, it always impresses me about this movie. And I and now you've helped me put sort of like my finger on why it's because I do love when like old noir and mystery films like would do that. And when voiceover works so well, and it does in this movie, and you've just sort of opened up a whole kind of new dimension of it for me. Uh, by by uh, suggesting that, so thank you. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about, but like, I don't know. I'm kind of seeing this as like a mystery film, a noir film. Um, it, it happens to take different yeah. avenues here and there. It is, of course, a war film, but it's not your traditional war film. We're not getting epic battles. No, we're not getting no. strategy. Yeah. Certainly not strategy, yeah. right? <laughs> and, and it reminds me of like the best of um, like the shaggy dog noirs. You know, the ones that like what was the point what's the purpose of any of it you know like what did we even really accomplish in the end you know like we've been chasing our tails the whole time in a lot of ways and i get a lot of that at the conclusion of this like sure the movie needs to end and colonel kurtz is murdered by the guy and like he mission accomplished but who are we now that we've done this and what it's you know and like you could see at the end of the movie he's like who am i now like what is what is this gonna what is this accomplished it's like he said when he was set off on this mission you know like it's like arresting guys for speeding at the indy 500 like what is you know we're not sending a message to anybody here that doesn't already get it so it's pretty interesting absolutely absolutely again i i don't know why i wrote down the movie the maltese falcon right mm. or even like it, it reminds me a little bit of chinatown in certain ways oh certainly yeah yeah i could see that for sure the other thing I wrote down is like it reminds me of you know Homer and the Odyssey because like ah. it, it is a journey film and we go to these weird little side stories here or there. Yep. So this is like sort of a tale as old as time in a sense as well, just in a super modern setting again for the day. The next big scene I had written down that I wanted to talk about 
uh, is just the whole meeting the crew, getting on the boat. I, I love this crew. I've always loved this crew. And the first one I want to bring up is the first one, or one of the first people we get introduced to, and that's Chef Freddie Forrest, Frederick Forrest. We talked about him <laughs> yeah. a lot, a lot on One from the Heart, right? Yeah. This was always my favorite character, like growing up and watching this film. What do you What do you think of Chef? <laughs> yeah, man. Even before I knew this actor, I was this guy just has so much charisma, you know, and uh, his mustache and his accent, man, and just the whole shit man and like why are you guys sitting on your helmets you know so we don't get our balls blown off and he like kind of like chuckles he's like <laughs> and then he's like uh and he puts his helmet under him and he sits on his helmet like just just so much great shit in this movie like with him specifically the whole don't get off the boat with the with the tiger and stuff and um what was the line they use when he smokes the weed when he smokes weed he Oh shit! It was like such an old sort of like saying for getting high, but yeah. I, I, it was so funny, and it also reminded me of him smoking up in Valley Girl as well. <laughs> Maybe they called it Chiba. I don't know, but anyway, yeah, I just just totally love him. Yeah, uh, he's described as wound too tight for Vietnam. Maybe even wound too tight for New Orleans, and I and I get that. That pretty much sums up who he is. He's a fun loving guy, but he's still. He's not loose, you know, <laughs> not at all. Oh, no, 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 no. He's very jumpy. <laughs> uh, so Albert Hall, one of the most fascinating characters, he plays uh, Chief. Chief runs a tight ship. He is the skipper of the boat. An old Navy man, for sure. I don't mean old in terms of age. I mean old in terms of this is a dude who went to the Navy to skipper boats and Yes, he's doing that, but probably not in the way he thought he was, but still treating it like that. Now, there's so many stories of the Vietnam War era of people, I'm not going to call it, like it would be effed up to call them cowards, so I don't want the story to come up that way, but hey, saying, hey, I hear it's bad out there. I don't want to be drafted in infantry. Let me join the Navy. What are they doing in Vietnam? And of course the U.S. makes a decision to start to send the boats up the rivers and, and convert the Navy mm -hmm. to sort of a, a brown water Navy in that respect. Just a little history there. The chief is not one of those people. I would say someone like Chef. Chef tells his story where he was like, oh, I was going to get drafted. So I decided to enlist in the Navy and be a chef. And I was cooking all this meat and I saw how gross it was or what they were doing. So I, you know, filled out for another position. Like, that's more of a story of a lot of people in the Vietnam War who joined the Navy instead of the Army and wound up, wound up fighting almost the same way, if not worse. Yeah. Chief is just, he feels like a Navy lifer. If in World War II, he might be piloting a different kind of boat, maybe a battleship, right? But the circumstances <laughs> of this American war have sent him up the river on a special mission. But he's going to take it just as seriously. And we'll see that throughout the movie. Yeah, he doesn't. He, yeah, he's pretty no nonsense. And eventually he forces um, he, he forces Willard to tell him the mission, basically, kind of. Well, most of it, like where they're going, at least, you know, not that they're out to get Kurtz, but like, you know, where am I taking you? Yeah, I love this character. He reminds me of the uh the leader of the marines in aliens oh yeah you know, he's just kind of a drill sergeant but also one of the guys like your leader but someone who's also gonna like throw down um next to you and stuff like i don't know just like just 
give me a sense of like this is the guy who's like holding everyone else together uh to a degree too seems to be someone to look up to and yeah just badass and hard as nails absolutely and he is sort of the foil for willard um Mm. willard even says it like it might be my mission but it was his boat right so they'll be at odds at certain points Uh, other two people want to mention of course are sam bottoms who plays lance johnson uh we'll talk about him i think a lot in the kilgore scenes but he's a surfer from california and we see him descend into madness uh throughout the film and on uh hearts of darkness he was like yeah i was on a lot of drugs well, it, it's funny because they drop a line much later, like, you know, an hour or two later, where it's like, I dropped the last of the acid. And it's like, the last of it? Yeah. Like, you guys have been doing this the whole time? <laughs> no, it's absolutely insane. This is the first time that I realized, maybe I did when I watched The Last Picture Show, but he's in the film The Last Picture Show, and he's really good in that as yeah. well. So uh, know him from that, from High School Slumber Party. And then, of course... Yep. One of the most recognizable faces today in this film. Good old Larry Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne, 14. Morpheus. Yes, you've talked about him on Keanu Club for sure. He is only 14 when he shoots this. He was actually 18 when the movie was released. That's how long it took to release the film. And he plays just a kid from the Bronx. He's 17. The character's 17. Sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in a sense where like killing doesn't feel that big of a deal for him he's almost like on an adventure out here he seems at times the most like high-spirited if that makes sense right he's a kid he they made him seem like so much of a kid in this film yeah I, i was just gonna say that and that i think is the point is that there were kids over there and they were either going through puberty or haven't gone through fucking puberty yet you know like they were literally like what else is he supposed to think you know like there's no way you could have a clear sense of how dangerous it is so like he's just dancing and listening to music and trying to have fun like that's basically his main goal is like man i'm on like i'm trying to have fun out here and see what i could do to stay occupied i don't think he's into necessarily like wanting to hurt anybody but like you know he's also going to try and be a good soldier too he's kind of like overlooked most of the time because he's just another young kid on the you know on another boat and it's like he's their young kid so it's it's a big reminder to me of like there there were a lot of kids over there and a lot of them didn't know what to think necessarily you know so i'm sure a lot of them just tried to you know it's like that whole thing in your head you i could imagine it's the same as like being incarcerated for some people where it's like you just don't know what to think so you just try to make the best of it uh it's like being in shock i don't know something like that perhaps yeah i think you hit the nail on the head mike i think this character is supposed to show for us uh, look you could really shit on the u.s in this movie if you watch it right you could shit on the vietnam war but it's not just the vietnam war we're talking like ancient greeks we're talking about like the history of war the use of young kids in harsh times oh world war one right like Like, but they're the uh... easiest to control they're the most willing to fight they have the least to lose and he's a great example of that and i think you rarely see that in war films so i don't know just love seeing it 
Yeah, yeah. I can't remember seeing it in, in, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I don't think anyone in Platoon, in that Platoon, was this was portrayed as this young. I could be wrong about that, but, but yeah, you know, I agreed. Like, there's just, you know, and there's so many of them. It's just like, throw them at the enemy. Just keep them going. It's wild. Absolutely wild, Mike. It's such a good character. And again, for this to have turned out to be the great and accomplished actor, Morpheus, <laughs> <Right>? Morpheus <laughs> himself, Lawrence Fishburne, is so amazing. Cowboy Curtis from Pee Wee's Playhouse, shout out there. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, no, most definitely. Oh, man. And and the guy, the guy, I always forget his name, but the guy who plays the King of Cartoons, or one of the King of Cartoons, was the same actor, I think it was Gilbert Lewis. Yeah, he was Blackula. Oh, so, yeah, mean, you're right. You know, a lot going on over at Pee Wee's Playhouse. I mean, we can do a whole Pee Wee's Playhouse uh, discussion if we want one day. I'd be up for that. <laughs> so let's get into, I think, one of the most iconic sequences, not just of the I, film, not just of Francis' career, but in film history, the Kilgore stuff. I, 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 iconic. <laughs> Had to do that. Yeah, even even before I saw this movie, I knew a lot of stuff about it. And the one thing I knew the most was the flight of the Valkyries and the choppers. And I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I don't know how, but that bled into my brain throughout growing up, uh, just through the zeitgeist of like, you know, society and pop culture at the time somehow all that got through to me before i even saw the movie and, and that in that line uh terminate with extreme prejudice or whatever like that i knew that before this movie i knew the horror right oh the horror the horror like all that shit so i guess what i'm getting at is kind of iconic lines in this that i didn't even realize are a lot of great one lines. so many of those lines have permeated into pop culture even if you haven't seen the film you're so correct mike and i think robert duvall here again a veteran a deep veteran of of coppola stuff zoetrope stuff awesome seeing him here it's such a big character and just this air cavalry so they land at this point and this is who they need to hook up with (laughs) To, Damn airborne. <laughs> it's who they need to hook up with to get to whatever point in the river, like the mouth of the river. And yeah. it's so key that they're cavalry, they're air cavalry. And, and how uh, Willard explains it is like they turned in their horses for helicopters. And the way it's depicted in this movie, it's almost quite literally, right? Like these are the guys who you would hear about and read about and see in old films who would be on horseback and just... Yeah. Essentially, massacre Indians. I hate to put it that bluntly, but it's true. Yep. Like those dudes. Like like Custer and stuff, right? Yeah, and like, you know, with their sabers, just like cutting down people left and right and everything. Yep. Yeah, and those old movies where they're supposed to be the heroes, but you watch it now, it's like, wait, the people in bows and arrows are the bad guys? And you with the guns and the swords are the good guys, you know? But... That's yep. depicted so well here because he has the old, like, almost Civil War Kilgore I'm talking about, played by Duval. Yeah. The old Civil War hat. And they're, like, oh, so yeah. into it. And they're so into... These are stone-cold killers. Well, this, this guy, this guy, 
I mean, the, here I do see the the Western relation because he is a cowboy. Like he's a cowboy depicted in like the truest sense of just this salt of the earth badass. Willard even says like you could tell he's not going to get a scratch on him. Like you know he was built for war. Like this guy was probably designed. You know, like I could I could see John Milius going like and Kilgore was the epitome of what God saw as the ultimate human killing machine or whatever. He was designed for war by God himself. Right. Like I could see that. Like that is sort of the depiction. I mean, the dude is shirtless on a war zone. Like he never, my favorite thing about Duvall's uh, uh, performance never flinches once. Never. There's bombs going off in front of him. Bullets, boom, people getting boom. killed. And also his own, <laughs> sense of who he is right he's a superhero i mean not to me or you but you know what i mean like he feels no no yeah he feels like he's a superhero captain america dude this is the that verse this time's version yes of him. and he knows it even to the point we see him a couple times of like wounded soldiers wounded vietnamese and he's like help this person help this person but he can't he can't help his own flaws he to me is the biggest allegory of america hate to say it but it's true, or at least America's perception around the world, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think he's a good kind of. I mean, he's a he's an amazing character, right? Because you just love to hate this dude, like, and we know guys like him. You know, it's that fucking super macho machismo, that that entitled fucking uh, patriarchy bullshit, right? Like, like. Kilgore's wife isn't ever going to leave the kitchen or get a job until she divorces him, you know? Like, it's just that, stereo, like, stereotypical American. And, like, it fits perfectly in this context, you know? Just that I have the right to do what I'm doing here. Just, just fucking call in the napalm, you know? We're taking over. 100%. And it's not, he has the right, but it's not in a self-righteous way. It's just in a, he has the power to do it way yeah he was given he was given permission right you get that sense of him he's like you're gonna let me go in and do all this shit he's almost worse than kurtz like it's crazy. he's essentially his unit is killing innocent people at times we'll get into why in a second but just to bounce sort of the end you mentioned mike the napalm scene but what i think people don't talk about with that napalm quote is how it ends how that quote ends yeah it's him, yeah. him saying Someday this war will end. And you see his face, and it's a look of disappointment. Like, yeah. oh, man. Like, when this war ends, my powers almost end. And I have to go yeah. back to being a normal person. He tells that story of, like, you know, the first time he saw the napalm used, and uh, it, like, wiped out the whole, like, all these people. And they went up on the ridge, and it was just, like, eviscerated. Like, not even a bone, right? It's just ash. And you can smell that gasoline smell, right? And he's like, that's the smell of victory, yeah. you know? And, and it's, like, so kind of... It's really... Like, I'm not saying I like this guy or anything, but, like, it's like Willard. Like, you just feel sad for him because it's not entirely in his control, you know? Like... There is a bit of like nature nurture kind of shit I feel going on with the guy where it's like he's out of control. Like as much as he knows himself, he he's not aware, right? He's not self-aware in that third eye sense of like a conscious dude who's like, quote unquote, would ever wake up, 
You know what I mean by that? Whatever nowadays be woke or whatever you want to call them. And like, I don't think that's a good thing for this guy. And like, that leads me to like what you're saying about him not wanting the war to end. You know, it's because he's going to have to go back to civilization and he knows he doesn't fucking fit in there. And it's a lot like Willard too, but Willard knows he doesn't, he knows where he belongs and he's not trying to, he's getting divorced and he's going back to, you know, find missions. And he, and he doesn't think he's coming back at the end. So I don't know. There's just like weird tragedy about this dude too, that you just can't deny as much as like, he's a piece of shit. It's just like, there's still a tragedy there. hundred percent. And it's, it's like mirrored with this, which shocked me the first time I saw this film that we know Lance is a surfer. But the fact that Willard and basically it seems like the people he's promoted next to him have just been promoted like as his lieutenants or whatever, just because they're surfers too. And when they, when they find that, that Lance is like a really famous surfer, he's almost like in star fucker mode, you know? Oh, totally. He'll do anything to impress Lance and just talk about surfing. And again, it's the, he's this wild killer out there, but he still sees himself as this like california dude yeah uh you know i keep plugging my own show here my other show ice of slumber party but like there's a moment here where he's trying to create like one of these beach party sequences oh, right. like yeah there's a guitar and a fire and they're acting like they're at home on a beach in california like t- swapping yep. surf stories talking about the waves you know i did not expect that from this character and it makes this character so much better that like he he has a dichotomy of yeah he does like home he does like the surf lifestyle and he's making decisions where multiple people many people droves of people die just based on like his own personal desires and sometimes it's just yeah. surfing that's wild right because like even willard says you know like uh they're trying to make it like back home you know and for for whatever reason right like the surfing the 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 kumbaya bonfire bullshit or whatever like all the partying it's all this like they're not they're not there fighting the war they're there just trying to like feel comfortable or some shit you know it's so weird how like against orders it all is and just for the uh their i want to say their own amusement per se but kind of you know like he he has turned his platoon into this like group of people to make himself feel comfortable over there you know and in charge so i could only imagine if he like actually was surrounded by people he was supposed to be surrounded by he wouldn't have this like fucking bravado image of kilgore like the surf god or any of that kind of shit uh, but it is fucking hilarious how he does uh melt down in front of the other surfer and everything and then he, he even he even like goes to him is this guy with you referring to willard who's like the guy who outranks everybody on the beach right now, pretty much. Yeah, it's so funny that he's ignoring Willard, despite Willard having a clearance, like the highest clearance you can get, until he finds out that he's with a famous surfer. Then they get everything they wanted, which is insane and hilarious. And I don't mean hilarious in like a ha-ha Ben Stiller comedy way. No, no. There's a dark, there's sort it's of like dark, a dark yeah. irony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because also like... He knows better. Kil- Kilgore knows better because Willard comes up to him and he's like, we need to go here. You have to you have to drop us in this spot. And he's like, that's a fucking hairy place. We've lost 
recon there like multiple times you know and like the one guy's like yeah we just lost so-and-so like yesterday and he's like yeah dude like that place is fucked and then one guy's like but bro man there's some really crazy swells out there they break both ways and he's like there's good surfing there well then fuck it like yeah let's go and willard's like sweet like yes anything to like get this guy to take me where i need to go (laughs) so it's like it's like such a weird fucked up like you know, I need to use this guy any way to get me to go where I'm going. So if he needs to know there's great waves there, great. But like, it is so dangerous that like, they're going to end up losing lives and killing people and basically nuking an entire village just to get Willard and his crew a little further up the river. And he says one of my favorite lines in that sequence too, where basically he's now rationalizing going up there just because the surfing is choice, you know? And, <laughs> and they're like, but Charlie's all over the point. One of the soldiers say, he goes, Charlie, don't surf, you know? <laughs> and it, again, it just changes everything. Dude. Let's talk about the maybe top three iconic sequences, maybe the most iconic sequence of yeah. the film, and that's Flight of the Valkyries, Wagner, just the helicopter sequence was just shot so beautifully it's shot so epically you're almost rooting for them because of how well it's like (laughs) shot and done but they are just killing for no reason yes it is their enemy there but they're shooting women and children they don't care they're just you know it is an epic show of american force and power but it's so sinister and fucked up at the same time well, and to use Wagner, right, who was like a German and didn't Hitler like to use Wagner? Yeah, an- and anti-Semite. Yeah, like there's a lot of dark connotation with that. And like uh, the music is so imposing and, and, and bombastic. But like the flight of the helicopters, it's like a sky ballet. Like I don't really know how else to kind of describe it, but it is just gorgeous in a way like. In this kind of sense, like the whole movie is giving me a, a, a sense of awe that like I just haven't discovered recently in modern film as much, you know, and I go back and watch this and I'm just like shocked. Like, how the fuck did he coordinate this sequence? Like, how long did it take to shoot? How many months in the edit bay? Like the idea to use Wagner in the first place, was that was that in the script by Milius? Was that going to go all the way back to George Lucas was going to do that? Like, that's just so fucking clever. Um, you know, they do that a lot in war now with like, you know, they'll blast like Miley Cyrus, I guess, <laughs> like to sort of try and get people out of uh, bunkers and shit and stuff. So like the psychological aspect of it. Yeah, you, I, I can't imagine what you must have thought on the ground hearing that coming over the hills and again just the lack of mercy at times and when they do actually like land and temporarily we'll say take over this this town his only obsession just becomes surfing and getting lance to use his board and surf and i honestly i love lance here and i think the acting is so good Lance doesn't give a shit that they like surfing, right? He's not like, oh, yeah, I found yeah. even Willard at times is like, oh, just at one point he's like, aren't you going to say bye or like, aren't you going to talk to him? And Lance is like, sort of, in it, even as like, surfer, no. like, these guys are losers to him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Th- th- that That is so much 
more clear in the Redux. That is not really gotcha. in, in the theatrical cut. Lance is just like, yeah, he's just a surf bum too. He's just like, sure, man, like, uh, give me a board, whatever. Like, that's how it comes across more. There's none of this Lance being like, uh, it looks kind of hairy or like, I'm an artist or, you know, like any of that shit or like, here's these shorts we made you or like that kind of stuff. Like, they lay it on way thicker in this, which I like that because it makes Lance a deeper character, you know, aside from just a, a druggie ultimately is what he kind of comes across as in the original cut. It's just a guy who's, who's the guy doing drugs all the time to the point where at the end he's, he's done too many drugs and he's lost his mind uh, that way, as opposed to the other ways other people lose their mind in this movie. But like, yeah. So I appreciated that much more about the extended part of this sequence. Yeah. Honestly, in this version, and, and I didn't realize that, like you reminded me of it, but in this version, he comes off as like, especially earlier in the movie, like before the drugs have gotten to him, he comes off as like, I don't think he's necessarily saying he's an artist because he believes that. I think he's just like, he's like, these people are losers and they want me to surf yes. here. He's like, yeah, I can't do that. And he's kind of making an excuse because he, he's totally. even more conscious than them. Like, hey, we're at war. Remember, Kilgore is like sending other people to surf and they're getting like shot at and they're dying. Oh, my God. That, that is some of the crazy... I don't know how he shot that either because there are these dudes out in the ocean, in the waves, and explosions going off around them. And they're like, ah! <laughs> can't insane. catch a break! Insane. It's just insane. So yeah, I just want to give a shout out to just like the Lance character just really shining here. And he's the one yeah, who decides to take the surfboard where he's just like, fuck it. Which apparently, I read that's not in the original no, not at all. N none of taking Kilgore's surfboard is anywhere in the uh, theatrical cut. Uh, but but also, like, in the theatrical, like, in this cut, I don't feel like Lance is showy, is showboaty or celebrity at all. And it does come across a little bit in the original cut because we don't get to know him any more than just Willard saying, you know, he's a hotshot surfer bro, you know, from California who's famous and this and that. So, like, that's just what we get. You know, so that to work with. So it's kind of nicer to see in this one, like, no, he's not like goofing off or any of that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's not there to slack, which I kind of feel he is a little more in the theatrical cut. You know, yeah, that's just a personal. No, he feels very human in this. He might be a famous surfer there, but he definitely, at least in the beginning of the movie, realizes he's in Vietnam and he needs to just survive. It, yes. Like, he yeah. probably didn't even think his surfing was going to come up at all no in Vietnam. No way. No way. <laughs> oh, man. The last place. Two other notes I had on this sequence. First... Every time I watch this, I'm surprised to see uh, R. Lee Ermey in the, yeah. in the helicopter sequence. This was the first time I, I picked him out. Like, again, I mean, it's been years since I've watched this for some reason. But, like, I don't think I was as good with voices back in college, you know? Or, like, at least I didn't spot him before. But that's so dope that he's in this movie, too. I don't know what it was, but when I was in high school, I loved I loved Vietnam War films. <laughs> well, I think what it was for me is I loved Kubrick films and Coppola Fair. movies, and they just happened to make two insane and insanely different Vietnam experiences. So I, I mentioned, I think, last time that the first, or recently, that the first DVD I ever bought was Platoon, right? Like, one of the first DVDs... Oliver Stone. One of the first DVDs my uncle bought 
who's very influential in like my film history. He was the person, aside from my mom, who took me to the movies the most. Like me, maybe even more than my mom. I saw movies with my uncle, and like one of the first DVDs he bought was the Full Metal Jacket, and he loved the Full Metal Jacket. So I saw that. Yes. Apocalypse Now was like the third one I saw, but then I w- started watching all of them. I was watching Hamburger Hill, Born on the Fourth of July. You oh, know, dude, <laughs> Hamburger Hill, dude. I I don't I don't think I've seen that more than twice, and I don't think I've seen that in ten years. Hamburger Hill, underrated film. But, I mean, this dude becomes so iconic. He ends up being in, like, Mississippi Burning and non-Vietnam stuff. But I think his role as the drill sergeant in Full Metal Jacket is just amazing. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is true, like, the legend around him. He was an actual drill sergeant, yes. But also, you know, he fought in Vietnam. And the, the story goes that after Vietnam with the GI Bill, he went actually to the University of Manila because it was like over there, he, he he was studying, and before this film, he uh, was the technical advisor, and then became actually the drill instructor in a film called The Boys in Company C from '78. Have you heard of that one? Oh, I've heard of it. I've not seen it, but that's cool. So he was in that, and he was just sort of there around the time. Francis heard that like you have a good technical advisor, and he's in the Philippines already, so he gets them to be technical advisor on apocalypse now and he's like hey let me put you in this scene because you're you've been like invaluable here puts him in this scene and then his career takes off and he's you can think about it he works with kubrick and full metal jacket he's working with coppola amazing he's in a a great film like mississippi burning eventually he's in like silly stuff like saving silverman and things like that but like and then i used to watch his uh, show on history channel mail call so like this dude like he made a career literally from the military, playing military guys, and then expanding that. And he's a great actor. And just to see him in a little cameo here as a helicopter pilot is awesome. So shout out to Arlie Irby. Most definitely. I mean, I remember watching Full Metal Jacket as a kid and him scaring the shit out, out of me. You know, like the first time I saw that movie. And then later, subsequent viewings, him making me laugh harder <laughs> than I could breathe. You know, so like good on that guy to be able uh, at different times in my life uh, give me different emotional experiences through his performances but like yeah what I perked up and I was like I know that voice oh my god look at it look how young he looks that's my favorite thing to say for some reason every time I'm watching an old movie I'm like look how young they look (laughs) the older we get that's definitely going to be the reaction right (laughs) right now look this is the first time we are talking apocalypse now in long form on this podcast so we are just going to go longer naturally i think when we'll do the other cuts who the hell knows with us but i'm assuming we're not gonna like get into the minutiae but we have to get into the minutiae this time minutiae it's like babushka (laughs) and the other piece of minutiae that we have to go over and that's the last part of my notes for this scene is how about francis ford coppola cameo here Oh, I love it. And it's so awesome. So meta and it's so good. It's like don't look at the camera. This is for TV. Just 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 keep fighting. <laughs> and Willard's staring at him like what the fuck? Like you are in this war zone like It's so crazy because that happened for all intent and purpose like from what I understand like for by all reports like there were reporters in the field like from what I understand from, from Full Metal Jack, and don't they mention the Stars and Stripes, right? They were out there. That yeah. was like a... Uh, that was a uh, military-based reporters, but still. Yeah, but they were out there. And there's that famous part in Full Metal Jacket when they're giving interviews to the camera, you know? They're being interviewed in in the field, in the shit. 
I love that Francis played him too, but like that, that was probably exactly what they were doing. It was just like, don't look at the camera. And then like the soldiers just being like, is that a fucking guy with just like a camera? Like, where's his gun? Is he making a movie? Like, am I awake right now? (laughs) It just adds to the, uh, like surrealness about it. Like, what is the reality here when like, like what's that guy doing here? You know what I mean? Like I, it's such like a, what the hell moment so good so good so amazing and so good again to see uncle francis on camera we rarely see him on camera so i love i love seeing that again love this sequence loves how it it ends in the redux with lance sort of betraying uh kilgore and kilgore almost being like hurt by this we'll go into it later why he's hurt but like it's just it's it's so beautiful and it's so (laughs) dark because of like how effed up and the, just the lack of respect for the locals. I think we'll get more into that later, but this movie is great at depicting the American presence here, just not respecting the local people at all. Uh, good guys and bad guys, if you will. And the Kilgore yeah. scene really early on hammers in within the first hour that like, yeah, this is not going to be your typical war movie where the U S are the good guys. We're not, even though they're going to depict it in a heroic fashion. United States, not heroes in Apocalypse Now. (laughs) What's even wilder is, like, as crazy as Kilgore was, like, we're going to meet a couple characters who are, like, at least one who's even crazier with uh, Dennis Hopper's character, but even Kurtz. Like, we're going to keep meeting crazier, more colorful characters upriver the further we go, you know? Like, even when we get to the bridge or even when we get to the USO show, like, there's some crazy shit going on there, you know? And, like all the way up this river is just populated by maniacs, you know, and like, that's what the movie is, man. And like, I love that shit. It's like all through the filtered lens of a psychopath who is sent to kill a maniac. Like who'd have known it would have been, it's so damn entertaining and so accessible uh, to, to like, the general audience like that is what keeps blowing my mind brian is like i'm watching this going like you know this is like has one foot in the art world and one foot in like the mainstream world okay but like nowadays this would come across way more as like an independent you know this is like it when soderbergh made che which no one watched but everyone should i love it's It's one of my favorite films two yeah, Both. two amazing two and a half hour movies. They're just incredible movies, incredible movies. Incredibly different too from each other, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And this feels like, you know, if Che came out back then, the audience would understand it because the general audience was just different at the time. And and to think that this, you know, played in theaters across America and was like widely accepted and yada yada yada, like it just it makes it so much more enjoyable for me to know that I'm not crazy and liking this insane movie with like all these atrocities going on because like, yeah, it is, it's, it's, it's incredibly accessible for the um, like troubling subject matter that it's, that it's tackling. And quite honestly, like the kind of tough source material that it's coming from and like the revered source material and all that. So on top of everything else, I really, think that that's what's so special about this movie too is that it's just like anyone can get it you you know it's it's not trying to confuse you it's not trying to be like highfalutin or anything and at times like 
it is pretentious at times and it is artistic, but like, it's never, I feel like him trying to go over your head or anything like that. I think he's just trying to present. And I think he does a great job of it in this movie. An art film would never get the budget that this thing had today, but would it have even gotten at the time? Because again, Francis funded it himself. This is why this is such a unique project. You're not going to get many big budget art films. And this is such an art film that I think it's, weirdly a crowd pleaser for a lot of people because it has artistic merit it also has Mm -hmm. just like blockbuster merit um this is a rare bird here a rare bird and again it's a a dodo (laughs) it's the rarest of birds (laughs) that's why i'm never never disappointed watching apocalypse now i watch the godfather with a different lens almost like it's a story that i can really dive into apocalypse now is one of these films that I think it makes me think more than The Godfather. Does that make sense? Like, that's not shitting on yeah. The Godfather. No, no. I mean, I think they're designed in different ways. You know, I think The Godfather, a lot of ways, nothing against it, but like, it kind of tells you how to think about things more. And this leaves it more up into interpretation, you know? And I think that's what I like about this is that it, it's sort of trying to nudge the average f- film watcher, like the, the person who doesn't usually look deeper under the surface of things to be. Like, it's kind of hard not to want to see a little below the surface here, in my opinion. You know, I think they make that intriguing to be like, oh, this movie feels like there's more going on than just going to take someone out. Well, The Godfather, yes, we learned from the offer was hard to make. It was not as much of a gamble as this film was. This film was a gamble. Even Francis didn't think it was going to work, but it just works so well. And for me, all its versions... So, so happy that, you know, we could talk about it like this. Yeah, I was, I texted you last night. I was like, you know, this would be a good place to stop for the first episode, but I'm going to keep watching for a while. And I think I watched the first two hours of this uh, in in my one sitting so far, because I was like, I'm just going to keep going because, man, I forgot how much I love this movie. Yeah. uh, Again, this is one of those weird movies that's like dark. It's, it makes you ask questions, but it's also incredibly rewatchable. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Again, I mean, because of the cinematography, the production design, like all this, it just clicks. Like it's, you know, everything is so well done. And we'll get into the mystery of Kurtz in later episodes. But I think the big takeaway for me on Kurtz in, uh, for the first part of this film is literally almost told to us in the voiceover, but told to us well, like, some of this stuff is the reasons why Kurtz might have gone quote unquote crazy, the R and R aspect. Mm-hmm. But a, a guy like Kilgore is almost the opposite of Kurtz. On paper, seems like the same as Kurtz, right? Like a killer, someone who's just out there, like a, a USA. Let's win the war. But you get a sense that Kurtz would never influence a battle due to surfing. You know what I mean? Right, he's a little more responsible than that, yes. Yeah, and you get a sense that, like, Kurtz Kurtz goes crazy, but we're almost learning that Kurtz goes crazy for reasons that make sense, and that's what makes the rest of this film intriguing. Yes, yeah, I, okay, so I think there's a difference. I don't think he went crazy. I think he was driven insane. It's a very sort of fine line, you know, but, but Kurtz on paper isn't the kind of guy, like they say in the beginning, I never would have imagined he would have gone over the edge, okay? But you take a guy like that and you put him in a place like this, 
where there where you take a reasonable man and drop him into a place where there is no reason and he tries to make order of things like what else do you expect to happen except to go nuts trying to control right trying to control what you can with your with the power you have and to, if you don't have enough power you fucking take it because no one's really in control over there like nothing's ever going to get done and that's what i think ends up happening with kurtz is like he backs himself into this fucking corner eventually so we'll see though we'll get there we're you know we're not quite there yet but lots of thoughts oh man well i hope you're not driven to insanity by bearing with us for another episode <laughs> on apocalypse now redux uh, this was a blast, Mike. I can't wait to talk the next part of this film. I don't know how long we're going to go, but I feel like this is a good point to, to stop at. So, Mike, yes. even though it's a Godfather line, unless you want to mm-hmm. leave us with something different. Um, and, uh, oh, how about um, leave, this, mm, leave the surfboards, take the can. Oh, leave the guns, take the surfboards. <laughs> they take because they take his surfboard. I, I got one better. <laughs> Leave the napalm. Take the surfboard. I love it. Very good. This is the end. Beautiful friend. This is the end. My only friend. The end. Oh.